developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is the Fighting Through Podcast. Great unpublished history. This is indeed the Fighting Through Podcast, episode 81, Coffee with Les Cook, part one. More great unpublished history. Britain stood alone against Nazi Germany, no other country. We had a responsibility to stand with them. I was in North Africa before I turned 18. The German Africa Corps was coming. We had taken a quarter of a million Italian prisoners and a handful of bullets from the fighters went into the ground where my head had been. So, <laughs> and he had his pistol in his hand and opened the door, jumped out and went off into the long grass and uh, he looked over, he was lying behind the log, a Japanese machine gunner fired at him and Hello again, and another warm World War II welcome to the Fighting Through Second World War podcast. I'm Paul Chielson, a Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through, from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of this podcast is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear memoirs and interviews with veterans in all the countries and all the forces. I dare you to listen. Today, we've got my interview with Australian Les Cook, whose epic stories you heard in episodes 63 to 68. And I'm talking with Les about some of those stories and much more. We've got Les zooming on his computer with the support of his daughter Deb and her husband Tony, who feature occasionally in the background. So, we were chatting on Zoom all the way across the world. How good is that? And of course, what could be better than this episode going out around Anzac Day? Les has many observations about the war, and uh, you don't get these in the history books, so it's just great to hear them. This was a very long coffee with Les, so much so that I think we were all on the ceiling by the end of it, and uh, I've extended it into two separate episodes, with the second part coming within the next day or two. I've got quite a bit of feedback and family stories to share with you first, and I can assure you that Les will be well worth the wait. A bit of sad news to share with you before we start. D-Day veteran Harry Billinge has died aged 96 after a short illness. 
Harry was a sapper in 44 Royal Engineer Commandos, surviving the storming of Gold Beach on June the 6th, Khan and the Falaise Pocket. He worked tirelessly supporting veterans' causes, spending more than 60 years collecting for the Royal British Legion's poppy appeal and helping to raise funds for a national memorial to the 22,442 men and women under British command who fell in Normandy. His many efforts were recognised in 2020 when he received the MBE from Her Majesty the Queen. Harry never considered himself a hero, just lucky. And in his view, the heroes were his fallen comrades and should not be forgotten. So that British Normandy Memorial now stands as a fitting tribute at Versailles, overlooking Gold Beach, thanks to the dedication of Harry and the many fundraisers who made it happen and cared for by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. R.I.P. Harry. And thank you for your service. On to a bit of feedback from the last episode now, and this is coming from Bus Boss. Um, Bus's grandmother uh, in the last episode gave the finger to a German soldier, and Bus says, Hi, Paul. Thank you for the way you told my grandmother's story. My mother shed a tear when I made her listen to it, and I think that's the biggest compliment you can get for just those five sentences. My mother told me that she felt very proud of her mother. Unfortunately, my grandmother passed away a couple of years ago, but I'm sure she would have been very proud if she knew her experiences were used for the purpose of helping the people of Ukraine. My mother says she at least wants to type out the whole diary in Dutch, so that's a nice start, and I hope her story helped. Smiley face. Bus... Thank you so much for that bit of feedback. Um, to respond to your hopes, the uh, Ukrainian appeal did get a good response from listeners. And uh, I'm keeping the links to the Salvation Army and Red Cross appeals open in the show notes indefinitely. Um, and they'll, they're repeated in this episode's show notes as well. Um, you might like to know that I've recorded over 50 click-throughs and counting um, to these links. So that's I don't know, possibly £10 a pop for each click through um, making £500 collected for the appeal. So maybe even double that. But I'm not party to this part of the process. I don't know. Um, But thank you to all those listeners who've generously supported this appeal. I've got a family story to share with you now coming from the uh, Colorado Rockies in America. Hello, Paul. Thank you for finding a passion that makes our lives that much richer. I appreciate your encouragement to support the Salvation Army. My own continued support for that noble charity stems from an incident experienced in the early 90s. A small town sheriff was tragically killed by a man and woman duo of would-be bank robbers. This occurred in a small mountain town high in the southern Colorado Rockies during the winter. I was a wildlife officer and had worked with a sheriff so responded to assist in the manhunt for the perpetrators. The November weather was snow-covered and bone-chilling in the rugged mountain community. We worked in teams throughout the day clearing remote cabins in search of the armed suspects. In the end, we discovered that they'd taken their own lives when faced with the inevitable capture. 
We were worn plumb out and half numb from the cold when a Salvation Army food truck was waiting for us with hot coffee and food. The volunteer had driven through the night to provide help. I have always donated and even became a Christmas bell ringer to support the Salvation Army. This organisation stands high in my regard for being a truly charitable army. Undoubtedly, your listeners' contributions will reach those Ukrainians in dire need of assistance. Your efforts make a difference on many fronts. Thanks, Paul. And that's Jay Saracen. Jay, thank you very much for that. What a great story and a nice bit of support to encourage people to go and follow those links in the show notes and make a donation. A few reviews now. Several people have kindly left show reviews in various places. And uh, this one's from Jack Fritz in the USA. And Jack says, Hi, I'm 13, almost 14, as of the 20th of April. Gosh, Jay, that was four days ago. I had a grandpa on my dad's side served in the Pacific during World War II on a repair ship. He never saw action and he returned, and I believe he died before I was born, or maybe I was just too young to remember him. So happy birthday, Jack Fritz from the USA, and that was on the Fighting Through podcast website. A few buy me a coffees now. Gary Heavens and Gary Rose both bought me some Calvados, and um, Tristan Smith said, My granddad on my mum's side was on the submarines during World War II and sadly was killed in action off Malta. They didn't call them iron coffins for nothing. So thank you guys, all of you, for your contributions. Finally, a shout out for Jamie Boer who bought me a very generous coffee indeed and also filled out the survey on the website so thank you Jamie and Jamie said in the survey that the D-Day episodes were his favourites he's born in 1948 and since the age of 10 as I learned about World War II I continued to be amazed that the young fathers and men around me had been asked to go away for years to save the world and they did yet they could come back and generally lead normal, mostly productive, happy lives. D-Day and the March to Berlin are the best examples of the difficulty of the mission and the related sacrifices. I also continue to marvel that by 1958, aged 10 for me, that the Germans and the Japanese had become our allies after having started a war that cost the world 70 million people, plus wounded and psychological casualties. And that's Jamie Boer from the USA. Thanks again, Jamie. Ooh, a bit of war stuff now. And lest you be in any doubt, I would like to confirm that two books are definite for publication through Pen and Sword later this year and both have featured on the podcast, so I'm delighted to confirm for definite that Heidi Langbein Allen will be seeing the last bullet on the bookshelves about her German boy soldier father. And Mike Moss from Canada 
We'll be joining her with the memoir from his father, Brian Moss, of the Royal Engineers, who has featured several times in this show under the guise of the Blitz, Wadi Akarat, D-Day, more. Title on that one to be advised. Oof, my word on two counts. Both books are due around October 2022, so keep a space in your diary and your Christmas list. I will keep you updated. Over to the main event now. Leslie Eric Cook was in the 2nd of the 14th and he served in Greece, Crete, Kokoda, the New Guinea Owen Stanley campaign, Borneo and in the occupation forces in Japan. He's written many stories of his war experiences, mostly on the lighter side, and you've heard most of his stories in a series of episodes, 64 onwards. I interviewed Les last year, and I'm delighted to finally bring you the edited recording, interspersed with a few more of Les's stories. And Les was ably supported by his daughter Deb and son-in-law Tony. Les, I just want to say thank you for giving your time to this. Just to let you know that your your first episode that I did, your first few stories, it's been listened to about 8,000 times. So you've had quite an audience. An um, international star. <laughs> so you're, <laughs> so you're, quite, you're quite famous, really. <laughs> um, but you've had tributes from quite a few of my listeners when I when I told them that we were doing this um a lot of them shouted some encouragement there's a guy called Richard Lord um Nigel Graham all said it's great news there's a couple of Aussies there's Andy Charlie Nenos who calls you an absolute legend and uh another Australian Sue Polidoro sent her best wishes and a Danny Fontenot as well, amongst amongst many. But uh, suffice to say, you've got quite a few fans out there who've listened to all your stories. Um, you mentioned earlier, before we started recording, that a lot of your stories are on the lighter side, and and it's really appreciated, actually, because there's such rarities. And when you read the history books, you you know, you don't really tend to get all this this sort of stuff coming out it's, it's all the the strategy and the maybe the blood guts and gore but um you, you've explored they, a different angle and it's fantastic they they don't uh, those sort of stories are not interesting they don't sell books well you never know one day we might get a book out of all your stuff <laughs> <laughs> just before we start properly are you are you keeping fit and well yeah, well, I'm not much worse. Very fit and well. Very well. He cycles everywhere still. <laughs> you're, still you're still cycling and you're 98. That was, that's answered my next question. Because I cycle as well, so uh, I, I know how enjoyable cycling is. So if you're still doing it at 90, I just think, <laughs> blimey, if, I can, if I'm still doing it at 90, I'll be absolutely over the moon. So good for you. 98, Paul, get it right. Have you any old war wounds that... Uh, did you pick up any wounds? No, not not wounds in the thing that they were imposed by the enemy. You know? No, but perhaps I suppose uh, 
I don't know if the word is psychological wounds, but you must have a few unhappy memories. But I don't, I don't want to. Oh, yeah. I don't particularly yeah. want to dig those up unless you volunteer them. So I'm not going to go trying to prise open old, old hurts <laughs> that you might have. But uh, if they come out in the natural course of conversation, that, that's fine. I just want to start off. I want to dip into some of your stories at some point, definitely. But just going right from the start, because by way of background, I, I don't know if you know, my dad was in the war and he was at Dunkirk and he was he joined the um, the army around about probably about the same time as you did in 19. In fact, no, dad joined in 1939, but you, you joined in 1940, didn't you? Yes, if you mentioned Dunkirk, <coughs> I got some very kind words from the Secretary of the uh, Veterans Affairs Department last year. And uh, I was, in reply, I, I said it wasn't a question of choice. It was a responsibility. After the uh, British Army was evacuated from Dunkirk, and that was about May. Britain stood alone against the war against Nazi Germany in the whole world, no other country, and we had a responsibility to stand with them. And my father was three years in the first war; he was English, and, uh, and six years in the second, and he was. Uh, four years above enlistment age, maximum was 42, he was 46. And uh, the minimum age in the early days of the war here was 21, I was 17. So he was four years too old and I was four years too young. <laughs> so so uh, mischievous intent and blatant disregard for the rules was running rife in your family, was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, there were many more Australians enlisted in the AIF in uh, around about that time of Dunkirk. We, we went from having one division to three divisions in a matter of a couple of months. And... Uh, it was, as I say, it was a responsibility. I was in North Africa before I turned 18. We're about 120 miles past Benghazi and uh, the German Africa Corps was coming. We had taken, when I say we, there was, we weren't the only ones, there was British regiments, uh, Scottish regiments, the Argyll and Sutherlanders and the Camerons, and I think the Black Watch even was there, that uh, and uh, the Northumberland Fusiliers, I can remember, there were several British regiments and tank units at the time, but we had taken a quarter of a million Italian prisoners in two months, and uh, the German Africa Corps came about the end of February and uh, we were being strafed by uh, ME 109s, the single engine fighter, German fighter, the Messerschmitt. And uh, we, we were just lying out in the ground. We didn't have any protection. And uh, I'd 
like lying on so alongside me, he said some called me and said something, and I turned my head and looked at him to speak. And a handful of bullets from the fighters went into the ground where my head had been. So <gasps> I've been uh, living on borrowed time ever since. Um, when I go through Dad's experiences, um, and there must have been about a dozen times throughout his war where he could so easily have been killed. And do you think, would, would you say broadly the same was true for you, that, you know, that was the first example of probably many where you could so easily have uh, departed? Oh, yes. It, it's, uh, you don't, I don't recall ever looking at it as though I would be the unfortunate one. Yeah. But you know, do you? When you were out in Africa, what year would that have been then? Well, we, we were only up there for two months, January and February 1941. They took us back from, it was a village, we called it Adjadabia, but when the trouble was on that ended with poor old Gaddafi getting killed uh, recently, uh, they spoke in the news of the city of Ajdabia. Uh, there were six mud huts when we were there. Wow. So uh, they pulled, we pulled us out from there and another uh, division took over, the Australian, the 9th, and uh, we went to Greece with the New Zealand 2nd Divi Division so the 6th and 6th Australian Division and the 2nd New Zealand formed the Anzac Corps. So we were Anzacs again for a month. What was the main name out in Greece? We didn't know. We thought we were going there to assist the Greeks to stop the Italians coming across through Albania. Yeah. And... Uh, I said that to the Greek ambassador here a few years ago, and his response was, Greeks don't need help to stop Italians. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but he was wrong. They, the, uh, the, the story we heard when we arrived there in March in Athens at the port of Piraeus, and uh, that they were amputating 400 limbs a day in Athens from the Greek army because they weren't properly dressed for the freezing snow country in the mountains in Albania. Wow. And their weapons were old-fashioned. The Italians had all modern machine guns, artillery, aircraft. They had all that modern equipment. Yeah. And uh, I've often wondered why the Greek people didn't hate us because I've thought that if we hadn't gone to Greece, the Germans may not have come down through Yugoslavia into Greece because they did that after we'd landed in Greece. Yeah. And Greece was at peace with Germany in those days and the German embassy in Athens overlooked the port of Piraeus, the swastika was flying over the embassy and uh, they could have counted every man and gone off the ships. But we were on the Yugoslav-Greek border 
up through the various paths in Greece, looking down on the town of Monastir in in uh, Yugoslavia, and before the Germans came, and uh, we were only in Greece a month. We just retreated from one mountain range to the next until we were evacuated. There was one story you told about the evacuation where um, an evacuating barge was stranded on a sandbank or whatever, and yes. the officer was telling somebody to, to get off, and no, <laughs> nobody would get yeah. off. Oh, well, that was we were in the port of Argos, and. Uh, a lot of our people were marched onto the ships and uh, the convoys sailed in the hours of darkness. And uh, when it was coming near daylight, because they want to be out of range of the bombers uh, before it got light. But uh, the Australian cruiser HMAS Perth stayed behind to pick up the rear guard and uh, all night long, we had we we put the wounded and injured people uh, onto the ships. There was a flat bottom barge driven by an English midshipman, and uh, th- there was a sandbar about don't know the distance would have been a hundred yards at least offshore. It's up to about our shoulders in water, and. Uh, when the barge was loaded, it hit the sandbar and wouldn't go over it. And all night long, when we'd, we'd been, those left on the beach were going out and pushing it over the sandbar. And because uh, the engine was going, and the moment it got over the sandbar, it headed out. And uh, we, we thought we could hear the sound of uh, tank engines coming down the road, uh, it was a rumble-like engine so coming down the road and, and uh, we got on the barge and of course when there was no one left to push it and uh, when the barge hit the sandbar it wouldn't go over it and no one wanted to get off because they were afraid they'd get left behind because the moment it got clear of the bar it headed straight for the ship and uh, and that's when this uh, officer, I know he was an Australian, but I don't know who he was. We were all a mixed up of people. And uh, he uh, ordered the men on the outside of the barge to get off and push it over. And no one wanted to because we were, once it got over the thing, you couldn't rejoin it. And uh, Anyway, he drew his revolver and, and threatened people if they didn't get off. And uh, all around behind where he was standing, you could hear the rifle bolts open and close. And uh, it was, there was silence for a few seconds and uh, nobody was sure what was going to happen next. And the... Uh, the English midshipman who sounded about 16 and a very, uh, very cultured voice said, it would be better, sir, if you were to get off first and show the men an example. And that broke the spell. 
nose of us on the outside jumped off and pushed it and some of us got back and some didn't. Those who didn't finished up getting back to Crete by taking small boats going across to Turkey and getting back that way. Some got left behind, of course. It's good to hear that the one, some of the ones that got stranded did get back. I, I pictured them all being taken as prisoners. I guess some of them did. As we're still fairly early in the war, when you were issued with all your gear, you, you had to go into the quartermaster's stores and he pretty much threw anything at you that he thought would fit you, including your boots. Is that right? Oh, that's when we came home from the Middle East. That was in Adelaide. Yeah. And uh, I, was, I was glad that the uh, quartermaster in that case did it because uh, if I'd have gone up into the mountains in New Guinea still wearing size nine boots, I'd have been hopeless. Because what size boots should you have been given? Seven. And what, and what did he actually give you? Well, when I first enlisted, they didn't have any sevens. The only one the court of us had was nines, and that got on my record. So, so when they wore out, they just replaced I could almost turn about turn inside the boots. <laughs> without, without them moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was glad of that because uh, we did do a lot of walking in at the finish in Greece and, and on Crete we did a lot but uh, I had trouble on Crete with the, because we threw a lot of our stuff away when we uh, got off from Greece and I kept a, a new pair of hand-knitted woolen socks that my mother had sent me and uh, I didn't realise that they'd hand-knitted woolen socks when they're wet, they stretch. We were only six hours on the Perth going back to Cedar Bay on Crete and uh, the socks were sopping wet, of course, like the rest of me, when I'd taken them off. When I put them on, they just kept getting longer and longer and longer and, and I finished up getting a bonnet and cutting them off. And... Uh, when we marched up into the mountains above the Malibu Aerodrome in, in Crete, they shrunk back, so they only came halfway along my foot. <laughs> and, and I finished in Crete with, with oversized boots and socks that only came halfway along my boot. <laughs> oh, dear. We, we didn't, men didn't understand that sort of thing in those days. Uh, that we didn't understand that wool, if you boiled a pair of socks, they would shrink. Yes, yeah. And, and if you wet them, they'd stretch. Yeah. We didn't know that. Oh, dear. Um, where did you go to after Greece? We went to Suda Bay on, on Crete, and uh, it was only a six-hour trip on the Perth, and... Uh, we went up into the mountains on Crete and uh, it was three over three weeks, nearly four weeks before the paratroop landing, uh, the Germans, and uh, we moved around Crete, but it was a mess. We Lots of people weren't properly dressed, didn't have their proper gear and uh, 
they had no food for us. We virtually had to buy our food from the uh, public places that in the villages, and uh, we didn't have anything. We didn't uh, have our. Uh, we didn't evacuate our our artillery, of course, because you can't pick them up and put them on ships, and. Uh, we actually blew up everything like that, destroyed it, and, uh, and drove the trucks over cliffs and smashed them up. And I was I was not involved with the paratroops. They their major attack was on the Malaby Aerodrome behind Suda Bay, and uh, the the eastern end of the island. They uh, the paratroops weren't quite as successful. The uh, at Malaby, they, once they had taken the airstrip or the aerodrome, probably call it then, that uh, once they had taken that, they were able to land aircraft. They didn't have to rely on paratroops. Yeah. So it's meant they could uh, land heavier weapons like light artillery and stuff, machine guns. They didn't do this in the eastern end of, of Crete. We didn't have the stuff to stop them. Freiburg, the uh, New Zealand commander of the New Zealand 2nd Division, he had won a VC in the First War and uh, he was in charge of the defence of Crete and from the very start he was telling the senior people in North Africa that uh, we didn't have the gear to stop the Germans, and we didn't. What happened in the end at Crete? Well, the Germans, they took a lot of prisoners. After Malamy fell, the, the attempt was made to get on the, over the hills to the south of the island of Crete at, at a place called Sparkia. And uh, the British Navy and, and some of our ships too were, uh, uh, could come to the south, southern side of the island and took a lot off from Sparkia. But uh, quite a lot of them were there for a long time and uh, the Cretans looked after them. And uh, the Germans... Uh, it, it was an offence for a Cretan to harbour an Australian uh, or a, a, a British serviceman that uh, I don't know if they killed them but they did mistreat them and uh, so some of them did stay there for a long time some of them escaped again to Turkey and got back Turkey was uh, neutral in the Second World War so uh, they, they could get there and work their way back to Palestine, probably. How are your teeth? Well, they're still there, most of them. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that. In, at one point in the war, weren't you a bit of a dentist, Dodger? Oh, yes. Tell me about that one, then. Modern, modern dentistry is uh, much more protective than it was the... To, uh, to be able to grind away most of the tooth and just glue a cap on it. Yeah. You couldn't do that a hundred years ago. <laughs> it seems to work. Wasn't there some 
incident when uh, you thought you might have been, you, you and a pal, you and a comrade got up one morning and you both had pearly teeth and you were, you were about to go into action. And I think there was a story about you decided you were supposed to be going to see the dentist that day. But <laughs> oh, yeah, no, we, we were back in Australia when that happened. We'd, uh, we didn't have a dentist in my battalion. And if you wanted to go to the dentist, you'd have to report sick to the doctor and the doctor would give you a referral to the dentist in the sister battalion in the 21 brigade that I was in. The 27th battalion had a dentist and my section leader, Laurie Gibson, and I, we'd both gone. I can't remember why I did now, but I must have had a reason. And we were walking across it probably be a kilometre at least away from where we were and uh, walking across through the bush. And uh, I was thinking at the time we had done invasion training, like beach landing training. We hadn't done it previously, so it was pretty obvious that they had some idea they were going to put us into a beach landing next time. And... uh, I was thinking we were going along, and in those days, in the army anyway, the dentist's drills were operated with a foot pedal. The dentist would stand on one foot and and, uh, and pedal this thing with the other one to operate the drill. And they didn't give you injections for it, uh, drugs. And uh, I was thinking, this is a bit foolish doing this, and I said to Gibby, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And he said, yeah, I think I might be. And uh, what's the point of us putting up with all this, with this pedal drill and stuff, and uh, we'll be in a beach landing and we might both be dead in a few weeks. And uh, we didn't go to the dentist. We uh, sat down under a tree and came back after half an hour. And uh, that resulted in the loss of the only tooth in my lower jaw, uh, that lack of courage, because when I did have time to get to see a dentist, the hole had developed to such an extent that they had to remove the tooth. Yeah. I think you used the term more than once in your stories. It's moral fortitude. Moral Mm. fortitude. Yeah, yeah, well, in in a sense, that's courage, isn't it? Yeah. I've noticed uh, my dad, when he was going into battle once or twice, he said that he was never afraid because you had too much to think about. And other soldiers have said that they were afraid. And I don't think there's any, any blight on anybody who was afraid because different circumstances will produce different reactions but were you ever afraid or was it a different kind of feeling there's there's always there's always fear but it didn't ever affect me that i didn't do my job yeah it yeah. was it wasn't that serious but that is no credit to you that's i was 45 years old probably before i realized that People don't feel fear the same. We're all different. And, yeah. uh, that uh, 
I've heard the doctors during the war say to men who serve of God, say, pull yourself together, lad. And now I realise they didn't have anything with which to pull, did they? That's why they'd cracked. Yeah, yeah. It's no, it's no credit or discredit to you. It's the shape you're born. I've just been reading one story about, uh, I think he was a private in battle, and he got, uh, well, he got frightened, basically, and he, he went air while he retreated from the back of the line, and uh, he was on his way, and he got stopped by an officer, and the officer says, where are you going, private? And the private said, sorry, sir, I was, I was going AWOL. I, was, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I'm, I'm sorry, Captain. He said, yeah. I'm not a captain, I'm a general. And the private says, Struth, I didn't realise I was that far back from the front of the lines. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is another one I've got to make sure I cover. Does, does the term... Um, Oi, Lynchy, fancy a brew, bring any memories up to you? I think you were slight. There was, there was an outer guard, there was an outer perimeter guarding the unit. You weren't in the outer perimeter, you were, you were off duty. And you decided you would take some tea to refresh the guys up at the front. Oh, yes, yes, I remember that. We had taken a, a feature and uh, it was in uh, Ballackpappan in Borneo, in the south of Borneo. And uh, it was normal practice in the jungles. Uh, there were sometimes fairly long distances between where people were, not like the trenches were in France in the First War. There were fairly long distances between where the people were, unlike the trenches in France in the First War. If you, if you took a post, you would, on all the tracks that led to it, you'd send out a standing patrol to uh, warn of any approaching enemy force to you. And uh, my, my section wasn't, we, we were back, but... Uh, Harry Lynch, I think it was, that uh, it would be nine section, was uh, they were out on the standing patrol and we'd boiled a billy to make a cup of tea and uh, I'd said I'll, I'll take a, a, a cup of tea up to Lynch's mob and and, uh, and when I got very close to where they were, the firing broke out anyway and uh, mostly from our side uh, rather than the Japanese patrol that had bumped into them. And uh, our platoon commander, he was behind a large tree and the bullets were going around everywhere and uh, a bullet, he heard a firing, somebody firing from behind him and the bullet went very close to him and, and he said, look out where you're firing, that nearly hit me. And the bloke said, well, there's two Japanese the other side of the tree. I've just shot one of them. <laughs> and uh, said, do you want a cup of tea? And he said, yes. You you took the tea to them, but you didn't take your rifle with you. So oh, I didn't take my rifle with me, no, I didn't. Yeah, that, that was, uh, they were probably only um, two or three hundred yards forward of where we were. And uh, so I didn't 
take the rifle, probably I I had the billy in one hand because they wouldn't have had any of their gear with them other than their weapons. And so I had a handful of enamel mugs in one hand and the billy in the other. <laughs> he, anyway, that's when I called out to him. There were a few shots being fired and I said, do you feel like a cup of tea? He said, yes, that'd be good. So I don't think the Japanese didn't attack. They were out on patrol and just bumped into the forward units. Did you used to refer to the Japanese as the honourable man? Oh, in some cases, yes. Well, that was... Uh, we were we were surrounded by them for uh, well, it might have been quite seventy two hours, but it was uh, certainly three days and two nights. And uh, was there an incident where two of them had strayed into the camp, and you weren't sure who they were, but when somebody challenged them, they they ignored yeah, yeah. The two soldiers weren't obviously Japanese, and when someone challenged them. They ignored the command. And then Said it's the honourable man, yeah. That was a sort of semi-humorous uh, name for them. And, uh, yeah, they were the when the two people... It was after dark, and uh, the two people appeared both with rifles and bayonets held across their body, and uh, one of the people among us thought that they were our own people to be that close to us. And uh, they turned to walk away and he called out, you're going the wrong way. And uh, that was when this other person who had the side view of them yelled out, it's the honourable man, let him have it. And, uh, it's the honourable man, let him have it. Was the honourable man a, a code? People used those... Uh, Shabby, hubris expressions uh, quite a lot. And, uh, we'd been up in the mountains in New Guinea. We went up in August 1942, came back at the end of January 1943, and most of us spent the next few months in and out of hospital with malaria. And uh, we were back in New Guinea in July 1943. There's a town on the north coast of Papua New Guinea that is Lae, L-A-E. And uh, we were involved. The American paratroops took a, a forward uh, airstrip and uh, we landed there and... and that was the 7th Division went in from a place called Nadzab outside Lai and, and we started the attack on Lai from there and our 9th Australian Division went further west along the north coast and they were attacking down the coast and we were attacking inland from where we landed and uh, <clears throat> Anyway, we took lay between us and then we moved up the Markham Valley and uh, there was a mission station, a, uh, a German mission. The division started moving up the Rabo Valley and uh, we sent an independent company ahead of, of the division 
and they had uh, arrived at this village that was a uh, a Lutheran mission station, and uh, they'd arrived there just before a Japanese force arrived, and they had stopped the Japanese from taking the place. They they backed off, and uh, what they did the next day, they'd uh, flew in some uh, a very lightweight grass cutting machine to cut the because the grass in that kind the kunai grass was about six feet high, and uh, the the land was flat, but you obviously couldn't land an aircraft on it, and they uh, flew up to the independent company had successfully driven the Japanese out of the village. The, uh, they had landed this lightweight petrol-driven machine that was uh, cut the grass down to ground level. And we flew in, in the first aircraft the next morning at the uh, Douglas DC with a civil title, the Douglas DC-2, and the Americans called them Dakotas, I think, D-A-K-O-T-A, and uh, they were a twin-engine passenger aircraft, and uh, they had a row of seats down each side of the aircraft, and they'd carry 20 men in the aircraft, and we were in the first one aircraft that went up the next morning. And uh, obviously from the back of the aircraft, you can't see ahead of you. And uh, to avoid getting into trouble with Japanese fighter, fighter aircraft, the transports tended to keep as low altitude as they could. Anyway, the engines had slowed down and the aircraft were coming into land and uh, all of a sudden the aircraft tipped on its nose and, and then dropped back onto its tail again and uh, because it was a tricycle on the carriage with the just one wheel at the back and uh, dumped us all up against the front of the door into the uh, pilot's compartment and uh, there were hand grenades rolling around the floor. Everybody was in a mess and uh, no one was seriously hurt. But uh, the aircraft, having made this sudden stop and then dropping back onto its tail again, uh, the pilot opened the throttles and took off and landed it on the ground just a bit on and... Uh, we were still sorting ourselves out at this stage and uh, the door opened and the, the co-pilot, he came out of the door into the passenger compartment. That was the only way they could get out of the aircraft and come down there and open a side door. And he had his pistol in his hand and opened the door, jumped out and went off into the long grass and uh, we uh, didn't know what had happened, what had caused all the problem and we were all trying to get all our weapons straightened out and stuff that uh, anyway we discovered after what had occurred, the man operating this petrol driven grass cutter uh, because the petrol engine, the engine stopped 
the him hearing the sound of the aircraft approaching and the aircraft approaching we were to find later the edges of throttle back he had lost flying speed and had no choice but to land and the man operating the grass cutting machine with the engine of his machine he hadn't heard the the aircraft coming and uh, he he looked up and there was the aircraft only on top of him almost and he jumped off the machine and ran into the grass to get away from it and the um, the pilot thought that he misbehaved the pilot thought that uh, he should have just driven it off yeah <laughs> uh, he shouldn't have just jumped off and left it there in the middle and uh, we uh, talking about it later on that uh, we all reckon we would have done the same thing if we looked up and saw the aircraft coming at us. <laughs> You'd have thought about number one. <laughs> I don't know. I surely he, he, the man who got out with the pistol, he, he hadn't come back when uh, we got off the aircraft, so he was looking for this bloke. He surely wasn't going to shoot him, <laughs> although he could see the risk we couldn't. You would have given them a good fries anyway. We had on those aircraft uh, uh, later on, they had a, uh, a hole put in every window along the side and it had a rubber seal around it sort of thing. It was still a hole, but this was to enable us to fire at enemy aircraft through the windows using our rifles. Wow. I don't know what use that would have been, but Again, it's one of those things that uh, if you were doing that, it would make you feel better than just sitting there doing nothing. Absolutely. And I think sometimes um, just the danger, the awareness from an attacking pilot, if he could see people with guns sticking out of the windows, it would have made him think twice about attacking, perhaps. Well, I don't know if... if the um, those aircraft would have speed of probably what 120 miles an hour, and the fighter has a speed of 300 at least, and uh, the fighter has eight machine guns, four in each wing, and uh, it is better for you to be doing something. Yeah, maybe it's a bit like wearing a helmet. It won't necessarily protect you, but it gives you a degree of Security. I only saw a couple of people saved during the whole war uh, from the helmet. And uh, one like I was in hospital with it was up in New Guinea. He looked over, he was lying behind the log, and uh, a Japanese machine gunner who wasn't very far away fired at him and missed his head, but tore the back of the helmet to pieces and all his back from his shoulders to his heel were filled up with a bit of steel helmet. Oh, wow. So it actually can be dangerous. But he survived. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He wasn't badly injured, but uh, it just tore the helmet to bits. Yeah. Wow. Les, where did your career take you after the war? My... 
my boss, who was a petroleum geologist educated at Oxford, he said to me one day, your English is atrocious. And I said, I know it is, that I hate writing. And he said, you have to go back to school. Your technical competence is above reproach. You aren't going to get anywhere in this life unless you improve your English. I think my wife was pregnant with our second child. There was no way in the world I was going back to school. And uh, he was right. I didn't get anywhere. Liz, there's nothing wrong with your English. <laughs> oh, there really, there really is. There really isn't. Those stories that you've written down, blimey. I've, I've read nearly all of them out in the podcast and I, I haven't done anything to them. I haven't had to like re rewrite them or anything. I'm a, maybe the odd typo or something, but uh, fantastic. Paul, do you know where the s stories came from? In that mum actually had dementia and dad cared for her at home some years before she went into a nursing home. So this was dad's sort of therapy that he would, well, she, he had some time. He would sit down and write. Yeah. And that was that's sort of like the origin of the stories was that this isn't, it wasn't something that he'd always done. I mean, he always told stories. Um, but the actual writing of them came when he was caring for mum and it was a way of, I guess, in a way, it was a little bit of an escape, wasn't it? Dad? No, no, well, it wasn't an escape. It was a way of occupying the time I couldn't leave the house. So uh, I had to be here. I had, a, uh, I still have it, an old imperial typewriter. If you're educated, you can use the correct words and make the most of something. But if you aren't, you can't. Uh, that's me. Well, I think Les, Les has been a bit unfair on himself in terms yeah. of saying yeah, he absolutely. didn't achieve anything. He actually worked for NASA when he was uh, in his career. And so you even went to Cape Canaveral, didn't you? Went up Apollo 11 Tower or whatever it was. No, Apollo 13. Apollo 13. Say, I didn't go on to the spacecraft and spoil something. <laughs> <When Skylab came Yeah. laughs> that would have been a story. There's a Greek memorial opposite the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. And last Thursday was uh, the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Crete, the 20th year of May. And uh, that, that's when the paratroops landed. Okay. In May 1941. Wow. So, sorry, just to put in this, this in a bit of context, the... Um, Dad gets invited to the memorial service, so he's the the only veteran who was actually there, and um, from both the Australian and Greek communities. So they make a big fuss over him. Oh, yes, so yes. he gets photos with, you know, the the Greek ambassador was here, and the New Zealand ambassador, and and, and, and everybody in the Greek community, and and that, and he lays a wreath on behalf of the Australian yeah. veterans. So. Yeah. It's embarrassing, though. It's very nice. And there we leave Les, at least as far as the interview is concerned. But we have got quite a few postscript stories coming up now, and uh, not the least with an outtake that you do not want to miss. 
And of course, do bear in mind that the second part of this interview will take place in the next episode following shortly after this one. Thank you so very much for your support and for making the time to listen to me. And please share the show with other people whenever you can. Above all, enjoy it. And please do hear me next time. Here's the PS. We've had some great fun in the past with various veterans introducing this show, learning their lines in a very sporting fashion. Of course, when we laugh, we're laughing with them, not at them. And on this occasion with Les, his hearing did let him down, as is so often the case with these veterans, but he was very happy to share this edit, otherwise destined for the cutting room floor. Over to Les again. Just one more request, Les. If What I like to do is get you recording an introduction to the podcast. So if I, if I give you some words, can you just repeat them? So, right, if you say, this is the Fighting Through Podcast. I've got the podcast. But this, this is the Fighting Through Podcast. Oh, this, this is the fight. This, this is the Fighting Through Podcast. But, but why? Paul's going to use it. It's the title of the talk. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the fighting through, fighting through podcast. Fighting as in fighting through. It's the name of his program. Oh, this is the fighting through podcast. Pod, 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 podcast. You should leave. You should leave the podcast in. I think. Very... Do you know? No, I'm sorry. Will I do it again? Yes, yes. We'll, we'll be quiet. This is the fighting through podcast. <laughs> podcast. 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 I mean, there words I know. Can you say podcast? Podcast. That's it. That's podcast. it. Podcast. We got it. This. This. This is the fighting through podcast. Brilliant. That's great. And then say, great, great unpublished history. Great. Great. Un- great. I want you to say great unpublished history. Great. 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 As in, you know, great so unpublished you, history. No, this is to introduce say, his show on the, oh, on, on you the podcast. Just say great unpublished history. It is published. Yeah, just say, <laughs> you have to say. When he wants to record you saying great unpublished history, that's all you've got well, to you say. Well, you are, because... You don't have to know okay, what it means. Okay, all right, I will say, say great unpublished history. That's great, that's great. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. You should be used to this. You're, you're a media star. You have cameras and all sorts of things. No, but I'm not. I never struggle with it all. <laughs> I, I don't... I've got a bike from the battalion coming up on Sunday bringing up an armful of books that he's getting three of us to sign our names in the front of the book because right. it'll bring more money. But, but uh... Oh, gosh, that was funny. I'll add that no veterans were harmed in the making of the intro to this show, and I'm using it with the full blessing of Les and family. And Les, thank you for being such a good sport. P.P.S. I'm going to share a story with you now, which uh, comes from Les's archives. Uh, strangely, one I haven't used yet, but it's about a miniature tank invention. Les called this one, Tanks for the Memory.
There must have been a great number of imaginative inventions submitted to the authorities during the war, but if any were accepted and put into use, we didn't see many of them. With few exceptions, we ended the war with the same equipment and weapons with which we'd started. Most of our weapons were of a type used in the first war, 20 years before, and we were probably the only army in the world which still used rimmed cartridges in our rifles and machine guns. Apparently, we were resistant to change. I was fortunate enough on one occasion, however, to observe the demonstration of one invention which I believed then and still believe had great potential. Needless to say, I never heard of it again. The device was a small, remote-controlled, tracked vehicle about one and a half metres long by about 60 centimetres wide and about a half a metre high. In shape, it looked like a miniature tank and worked on the same principles. The vehicle was controlled by a handheld panel which transmitted signals along wires unwinding from a drum on the vehicle as it moved. It was powered by electric motors, carried its own batteries and was capable of a top speed of about 50 kilometres per hour, depending of course on the terrain. According to the inventor, the prototype had a carrying capacity of about 25 kilograms, but this could easily be increased. The inventor was a mechanical engineer who'd designed and constructed the vehicle himself. He'd been with an engineering field company during the First War, where part of his work had involved him going out into Norman's land after dark to cut gaps in the enemy's defensive barbed wire entanglements. Lying out there in the mud, under fire with a pair of wire cutters, cutting the wire by hand was a slow and dangerous business and he determined that if he got back he would find a better and safer way of doing it. This vehicle was his answer. It could carry 25 kilograms of explosives out to the enemy wire in daylight where it could then be detonated thus blowing a gap in the wire. Because of its low profile and relatively high speed it would have a good chance of surviving the one-way journey. The operator could control the vehicle in relative safety by observing its movements through a periscope. He'd estimated that the cost of mass-producing the vehicle would be in the order of £50, hundred Australian dollars at the time. This moderate cost was less than the cost of equipping one man. In addition to his original concept of destroying barbed wire entanglements, he pointed out that the vehicle would have many other uses. It could be used to take a signal wire or ammunition or food to an outpost that was otherwise cut off by enemy fire in daylight. Loaded with explosives, it could also be used against tanks. In the role of tank destroyer, it had the advantage again of its low profile, speed and manoeuvrability. If the tank avoided its first pass, the vehicle could be turned around very quickly and brought up under the rear of the tank and exploded there. At that time, the speed of the vehicle was equal to or exceeded the speed of most tanks used in direct support of infantry. The inventor demonstrated this vehicle to a large number of senior officers from both the Australian and American armies on a sports ground at Toowoomba, Queensland. Standing under cover, 
and looking through a periscope, he drove the vehicle up the steps of the pavilion into the building, turned it around and brought it back down the steps. I suppose that it would be considered old hat by comparison with today's radio control vehicles, but it was an innovative concept for the time. At his invitation, many of the officers tried their hand at controlling the vehicle in the open. This was the cause of great hilarity, and a good time was had by all. Unfortunately, in my opinion, nobody seemed to take the thing seriously. One could tell from his appearance that the inventor was bitterly disappointed by the frivolous attitude of our officers. The Americans did at least appear to take some technical interest in it. As groups of our officers walked away after the demonstration, I heard one say to another, It's not practical. It would be too vulnerable to small arms fire. To which the other, who obviously had a better understanding of war, replied, well, Not nearly as vulnerable as a man. I thought of this vehicle and spoke of it often a few months later when we were at Gona, where the Japanese bunkers were so well camouflaged and heavily constructed as to be almost indestructible, either by bombing or artillery fire. Repeated frontal attacks by infantry against these bunkers had proven to be ineffective and horribly costly. I realise that it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to get these remote controlled vehicles over by the muddy track that led from the airstrip at Poppendetta to Gona. But... If it had been possible, they would have been instrumental in saving many Australian lives. The battle area was small, the lines were close together, and it would have been possible in several key places to have driven the vehicle up to the bunker and exploded it there. As far as I'm aware, no other country produced a similar vehicle. It was uniquely Australian and had the prospects of being a very useful and versatile weapon. Why didn't it get past the prototype stage? You know, I feel sure we've covered a story about such an invention in a previous episode being used during the Normandy campaign by the Allies, but I can't find reference to it. Answers in an email on any of the above. Thank you very much. PPS Here's another one of Les's entertaining yarns to finish the episode off. Punishment by Remote The transit camp at Unumba near Townsville was the only camp I was in where the ringkeeper at the SWY game scooped up a handful of fine red dust with her pennies and had to let the dust filter through his fingers before the coins appeared so that he could call them. The dust was so deep that some of the coins must actually have been standing on their edge when his fingers found them. Apart from the warm beer served in enamel mugs, Unumba was also famous for its unusual defaulters parade. There was a high hill near the camp on which, if memory serves me correctly, there was very little vegetation. It had been a camp custom, initiated no doubt by the Camp RSM, to use this hill to inflict the last, <laughs> the last punishment of the day on defaulters. At Tattoo, each defaulter was given a hurricane lamp, which he had to carry to the top of the hill, then return to the camp. 
As it was dark, the sergeant major, or the orderly NCO, could observe progress by watching through the window and thus ensure that the full course was covered. Apparently, this worked very well until two enterprising defaulters left their lamps on the top of the hill. <laughs> oh dear, Le left their lamps on the top of the hill and kept going, pre presumably to jump the rattler and go south for a bit of unofficial leave. Oh dear, I presume the rattler is like the Midnight Express train or whatever. Oh dear. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. I'm Les Cook. Goodbye. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.